It says, And when those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem, also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple whom we were with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when they had greeted them, he told in detail the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are also who have believed. And they are zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will all hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who've taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that they all may know that those things which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men... The next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each of them. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help this man who teaches all everywhere against the people and the law in this place and furthermore he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple and all the city was disturbed and the people ran together seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut and father we ask in the name of your son Jesus for his glory and honor that we could continue now in our worship of you and your son by your spirit helping us to just be attentive to what the word of God would seek to say to us by your spirit's ministry this morning. So Lord, you know what we need. Help us, prepare us in what we're asking. We pray your spirit now would be who speaks to us in personal ways through this text. And we ask together in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, unfortunately, misunderstandings amongst people are just a part of human experience. It's something that can't be avoided from time to time. Misunderstandings are going to happen. And honestly, there are various reasons that misunderstandings happen. Sometimes they're accidental. We just perceive maybe what somebody meant wrong or something takes place and we lack details and sometimes it's just sheerly accidental misunderstandings are just a part of life and human existence sometimes misunderstandings happen as well due to evil hearts and intentional reasons people who are problem starters that can be a root cause of misunderstandings that start up as well the fact remains we all have to learn how to navigate misunderstanding 
It's a part of life experience and you got to learn how to navigate when misunderstandings in life happen. We even see Jesus who was absolutely perfect. That's a step above all of us. And Jesus was misunderstood. Jesus was falsely accused, mistreated. And as his followers, we are going to from time to time experience the exact same thing. And we have to learn how to navigate that. And here I believe we see Paul the Apostle doing that very thing, navigating through misunderstandings in this section. Remember, Paul at this point now is at the close of his third missionary journey. He's on his way back from having been away for a few years, ministering again in his missionary activities. And he and his team are making their way towards Jerusalem to specifically visit the church and the believers there. But more than that, remember, as we've talked about, also to bring this financial gift to help the believers in the Jerusalem church who were going through a difficult time financially. This monetary gift had been given by the predominantly Gentile churches, many of whom Paul had planted and established around the areas of Asia Minor and Europe. And they had heard about their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ back in Jerusalem going through difficult times financially. And so their hearts were moved in love to want to help out their brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul saw this as a phenomenal way to further facilitate more unity among the family of God and these prejudices that existed for years and years, which we'll talk about between Jews and Gentiles and the hatred and animosity they had. But now here, Jews and Gentiles were one in Christ. And so they put together this financial offering, this love gift, if you would, monetarily. And now Paul, together with his missions team together as well with some of the representatives from these different Gentile churches are now bringing this financial gift to Jerusalem to present to the church there and the Holy Spirit we saw throughout this journey towards Jerusalem kept indicating to Paul through prophetic words that chains and tribulations, problems, troubles were awaiting for him when he did get to Jerusalem. And as a result of that, many who loved Paul were pretty worried for him. And we saw they even started trying to prevent Paul from going to Jerusalem because they were concerned about what would happen to him when he got there. Yet Paul was determined to do what he felt the Lord was clearly directing him to do and to stay the course and to carry through faithfully this ministry that he was, in a sense, in his mind, assigned by the Lord to do. If you look back with me at the end of verse 13 and 14, it kind of gives us the context that tells us that as they were pleading with Paul not to go, Paul said to them, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die if need be at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. In verse 14, where we left off last time. So when he would not be persuaded, Luke says, we ceased, everyone who was trying to prevent him, and said, the will of the Lord be done. Now, look at verse 15. And after those days, therefore, in light of that, he says, we packed and we went to Jerusalem. Now take notice here, despite their obvious reluctancy and not understanding Paul's determination to go to Jerusalem because he genuinely believed the Lord was telling him to go to Jerusalem, and yet there was reluctancy on their part. They did not fully understand, Paul, we just don't understand why you were so determined to want to do this. And there was a, a misunderstanding between them. There was reluctancy. That's why they were trying to prevent him. Yet notice 
Though they knew that this was going to happen and bring great risk, it tells us in verse 15, they cooperated with the plan. I mean, you can't get more specific. Luke just says, after that, we said the will of the Lord be done. We packed our bags and we went to Jerusalem. We packed our bags and we went. Luke indicates that in essence, they yielded in humility and faith to whatever lay ahead when they would just arrive in Jerusalem. It tells us that notice they did not just say with their words, the will of the Lord be done, but then afterwards dig in their heels in resistance to make sure the Lord's will wouldn't be done. Oh, the will of the Lord be done. Did you pack yet? Nope. But the will of the Lord be done. Where are you going to pack? No, no, the will of the Lord be done. But and, and we can do that sometimes. But notice, they didn't just say with their words, the will of the Lord be done, and then do something in their actions to resist that from happening, not allowing the Lord's will to come to pass. Instead, they actually submissively cooperate through actions of faith and humility and a cooperative spirit to just say, the will of the Lord be done. And so we're Packing up and the will of the Lord be done. We're going to honor that with our actions and cooperate with that. And I bring that to your attention because remember, one step, certainly one step in declaring the will of the Lord be done with our words is a part of the process. But it's important to not only say with our words, the will of the Lord be done, but it's a whole other thing to then cooperate in a way via faith and humility to allow the will of the Lord to be done. It's great to say it. That's the first step. But then we need to submissively cooperate by yielding our will, giving up our rights and taking our hands off and saying, God, you're in control. I'm not going to try and stop this, prevent this. Lord, just your will be done. I'm just going to cooperate. And whatever unfolds, unfolds. And an important thing that we need to do sometimes, even in the midst of kind of these misunderstandings that can happen among us, even as believers. Verse 16 then goes on to tell us in the text that as some of the disciples... It says, from Caesarea went with us, Luke tells us, and brought with them a certain Manasin of Cyprus, the island, an early disciple with whom, he says, we were to lodge. So as they continue from Caesarea now, and they're coming south down the coast from Caesarea, the sure uh, city there, heading towards Jerusalem, notice that as they're on their way with this delegation traveling, it seems like the delegation is kind of growing in size now. Verse 16 indicates to us that there's an addition of a few more people. Already Paul has his missions team, as we said, then on top of that, he's got a few representatives of leaders from the Gentile churches around Asia Minor and Europe. And now we see that some disciples and believers, verse 16 says, from the area of Caesarea decide to join with them in their journey down to Jerusalem. And note one particular man made mention of there in the text, verse 16, was a man named Manasin, who says he was an early disciple from the area of Cyprus. Likely, maybe an early disciple from that very first time Paul went out with Barnabas and they stopped off in the area of Cyprus to do some of their early missions work, that this was a man who was converted at that time. He's been a believer for some time. And it appears that this man, Manasin, possibly had something like we might say maybe a, a secondary home in the area of Jerusalem. Because Luke says, as we're on our way to Jerusalem, it was with Manasin, this man, this believer, who we were to lodge, that is lodged in the area of Jerusalem when they got there. We have to remember 
that during the time they're arriving in Jerusalem, as we saw in our earlier verses, it's one of the major feast days. Paul wanted to be there, remember it said, by the Feast of Pentecost? And when the major feast days would happen there in the city of Jerusalem, pilgrims, pilgrim Jews, and those who followed Judaism would come from all over the surrounding world to descend upon the city of Jerusalem and there in the temple to celebrate Pentecost or Passover, these major feast days. So the population in the city would basically swell tremendously during the feast days from, let's say, a few hundred thousand commentators believe to sometimes upwards to a million plus or more. Kind of how, you know, in the same way we live in a somewhat of a, a sure community and how the island communities, they swell in population in the summertime and then they kind of shrink back down in the off season. Well, this was kind of the idea. So as you went to the city of Jerusalem at this type of time period, the population would swell, and guess what that meant? Lodging was a problem. There was limited lodging. So here we see this man, Manasin, who apparently must have had some place to lodge, again, maybe a secondary home, and offers his home for the work of the Lord and to lodge this missions team. Again, maybe he was a believer, very likely, who was just a little more wealthy and endowed with excess. And so he said, look, no problem. I'm going to take care of the lodging. I'm going to put you all up in my place that I have there in Jerusalem. And I like this, perhaps an indication, an example of a believer God had blessed with wealth, and he's now just using his resources, his possessions, his property in just a practical way to help the work of the Lord. First Timothy chapter six says that we are to command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And then the Bible says, command those to do good to be rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share. And in this, they will lay up treasure for themselves and a firm foundation for the coming age. And I like this picture of Manasin here in the midst of this, realizing, hey, we're going to need a place to stay. And I wonder if Manasin said, look, the Lord's blessed me. I actually got a vacation home in Jerusalem. Let me bless the team. We can stay there. We don't have to figure it out. And I'll put everybody up and it's a big enough place that all the disciples and the team and so forth. And so Manasin here offers his home. They lodge there. Verse 17 tells us, and when they came to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. So as they arrive, they're greeted by the church with a very warm reception. It's interesting, that term that's used there in the Greek, they received us gladly, literally means to receive with great delight or to cause to be pleased by the reception of something or the experience of something. The idea is that when they came to the church in Jerusalem, these men were welcomed with great joy and excitement when they arrived, partly, no doubt, because, wow, they're getting to meet. Paul the Apostle and his missions team and all this you know, great ministry that they had done and they're honored to have them come there. They'd heard about all the great things that they were doing throughout Asia Minor and Europe. But also, as we talked about, keep in mind, another reason they were so pleased and delighted when they came, because what were they coming with? A great financial gift. They were coming with this love offering from all the Gentile believers to help them in a time of economic hardship and I just can imagine as they presented them this gift to them, explaining to them the origin of this, listen, your Gentile brothers and sisters who live in a distant land, they've never met you, but they heard about the plight that you were dealing with. 
They heard about your hardships and the hard times you were going through. And, and it was on their heart to take up this love offering. And we're here to present this to you in the name of Jesus and your brothers and sisters in Christ from somewhere totally different in the world. They just want you to know that God loves you and that he wants to take care of you and they want to share their resources with you. And this must have just been a very moving thing. No wonder it says here that when they met them, they received them gladly. There was great joy that came as the result of this encounter. And verse 18 says, the following day, then Paul went with us to James. And again, that's James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the New Testament letter, the book of James that we have in the back of our Bibles. And they also met, it says, the elders who were present, that is the spiritual leaders. Verse 19, and when he had greeted them, Paul then told in detail, it says, those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So this now marks, if you're a note taker, you want to put your Bible there, that marks the close of the third missionary journey, right there, verse 19. Coming to closure now, Paul went on at least three different journeys that we keep track of in the book of Acts, going out, doing missions work, church planning. This now comes to the close of the third journey. And as at other times, as we've seen in our study in the book of Acts, Paul comes back, he assembles with the church, having come off the field, ministering and doing ministry work, and he gives report to the church of the work he did out in the field. And we do see this very biblical pattern in the book of Acts of Paul sharing and explaining his ministry work and his missions activity and things that he was doing together with the church as he assembled with them. It says in verse 19 there that when he gathered with them, that he told them in detail all the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Again, remember, Paul's primary ministry and focus, though he ministered to the Jews as well, he'd always go to the synagogues first, but his primary calling from Jesus as a man and minister was to reach particularly the Gentile peoples, anyone who was non-Jewish in nationality. And so Paul's now giving record and report of what he was doing. And take note of a thing or two with me, if you would here. Notice Paul apparently found it healthy to keep accurate records of the things that he did together with his team in ministry. It tells us there, look at the verse, it says he told in detail, the Holy Spirit says. He told in detail, that is specifically what God did through his ministry among the Gentiles. Apparently, Paul felt details mattered. He felt like giving specific record of what God was doing was important. He shared specific ways and detailed accounts of what happened. And let me just say, I think that did two things. One, it helped people to really connect with what God was doing so they could then pray intelligently for the people and what God was doing in his ministry work out among those areas. But I think the other thing it also did for the sake of accountability is as Paul told in details what he did, it also validated that he was actually serving and not just sightseeing while he was touring around Europe. And it kind of validated, okay, he's not just enjoying being out there on the field and taking pictures here and going there and doing that and hiking here and, you know, seeing some monuments, but he's actually doing stuff. And I think when somebody serves the Lord, whether it's in missions work or is sent out as a representative, I think it's important that there always be a level of accountability like that to some degree for the person serving as well as those who are supporting them. Notice Paul also here, secondarily, we see in this verse, he also gave proper credit to what happened. 
to the right individual. You notice what it says there in the text again? It says he told what I have it underlined God had done through his ministry among the Gentiles. He told what God had done. Notice the cooperative work in the Bible of man and God that happens in ministry and in service. There is a cooperative work. Yes, we offer our human availability by serving and working in ways practically. The Lord uses people. Shocks me to this day still. (laughs) He could probably do a much more effective job through angels or just all by himself. But he actually lets us be involved in his work. And the Lord lets us offer our availability and we offer ourselves, we serve, we work, we do things practically to help, but God is the one who actually does things. We make ourselves available and look, we just miss the privilege if we think that, well, make yourself available. You got to offer yourself. You got to do something. You got to serve. You got to find a way to labor. But when we serve and when we do things for the Lord, yes, we do the best that we can humanly. But let us always remember it's God who's the one that does things through our lives. He's the one by his spirit that confirms and brings forth the, the fruit, if you would, from our labor. And let us always remember it's not what we've done, but it's what God does through us. And this is what Paul understood. He says, let me tell you what God has done through our ministry out among the Gentiles. Paul would write to the Romans later on, Romans 15, and say this, I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing Gentiles to God by my message and the way I worked among them. They were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's spirit. You see Paul mentions both there? He says, by the message that I spoke and by the work I did among them, but he says, everything happened by the power of God's spirit working through that, bringing forth the fruit. God is the one who does things. We just make ourselves available. So verse 20 says, when they heard this report, look how they responded. When they heard these things, they glorified the Lord, underline glorified the Lord. As they heard about what took place, the people were inspired. They were encouraged. Wow, listen to all these mighty things that God's doing. And I think it encouraged them, as it does when we share about ministry with people, it encouraged the church to realize, wow, God does work. God is working. Maybe we should let God use us. How can we get out there and serve? You know, if you ever listen to somebody share a report of how God worked in a situation or what the Lord's doing on a foreign mission field or, you know, through some ministry, what that does is it it inspires us through testimony to want to serve ourselves and to want to let our own lives be useful. But notice again, it says they glorified, praised, glorified the Lord, not the laborers. Not Paul, not Silas, they glorified the Lord because proper ministry and pure-hearted testimony regarding it will always cause people to rejoice in the Lord. It causes people to just say, wow, it's amazing what God did. Not, wow, you, you just, you're such a talented guy. Man, I mean, just your ability to speak or your ability, it wasn't that it was, wow, look what God's doing, man. Look what the Lord did. And there was just this awareness. Yes, God was working through a human vessel. But if and when, folks, glory is given to a man or to a person, when the ministry of God is taking place, then we are completely misunderstanding God's ideal for his work on this earth. 
Remember even Jesus himself said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. That's God's ideal. When anything different than that happens, we're misunderstanding God's ideal, which is to get glory as he works among us on this earth. Well, things seem to be going well up to this point, but then it appears that human nature begins to kind of dominate the situation here at this point, because watch what happens. Paul's sharing report, they're glorifying the Lord, but then verse 20, it's almost as if like this shift starts to happen now in the midst of this, and they start to pressure Paul to accommodate people there in the church in Jerusalem because of a misunderstanding that had happened that was based upon, we'll see, it was a misunderstanding based upon the purpose of the law among Christians. And really, the misunderstanding of what Paul was actually doing and teaching because of some rumors and gossips. Look with me as the text goes on in verse 20. It says, they then say to Paul, after they're done praising the Lord, yes, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. Now, take notice there. They bring to Paul's attention directly after the report of what? All these Gentiles getting saved and this great work God's doing among the Gentiles. And their very next breath is, hey, well, we want you to know there's a myriad, a multitude of Jews that are getting saved here in Jerusalem too. We want you to know there's a lot of salvation happening here too, Paul. And notice they say in these Jewish believers here in this country, he says, they're zealous for the law. They are zealous for the law. Now, wait a minute. Shouldn't disciples of Jesus be zealous for the Lord? Whether they're Jews or Gentiles, whether they're in Jerusalem or they're in Ephesus, a disciple of Jesus shouldn't necessarily be eager for living out and observing the law, but zealous for living for the Lord, living for Jesus. What does it mean to serve Jesus and be his disciple? Perhaps we have here an indication of a little bit of the spiritual tone and temperature that had come to pass in the church there in Jerusalem. We begin to see a little bit that many of these Jewish believers were in some ways kind of, we might say, still adjusting to loosening up their tight grip on the Mosaic customs, the ways of Judaism that they had been raised in and were kind of exposed to in their upbringing. And now that they have genuinely come to Christ in faith, they're still trying to, if you could say, sort out theologically in their mind, well, what does all this mean having been raised in Judaism and the customs and the laws of Moses? And, and now we're Christians and, and they're trying to sort all this out theologically and all these traditions religiously they were so accustomed to because of their upbringing in these things. And they're trying to work this out. So they say many of these Jewish believers, Paul, they're zealous for the law, verse 21, but they have been informed about you, that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the custom. So notice a rumor, yes, that even happened in the early church, a rumor due to some misunderstanding had been circulated about Paul and his ministry activity out among the areas of Asia Minor and Europe, predominantly ministering to Gentiles. They say right there in verse 21, they have been informed about you. In other words, this is what they've heard about you, Paul. 
These are the things they've heard you're doing. Unfortunately, either somebody misunderstood what he was doing or they assumed wrongly due to their perceptions that developed of kind of what they could see from their vantage point, not having all the details and the facts, or even maybe a bad heart condition, trying to start some issues. And they began to circulate or pass along word that this is what Paul was doing out there among the believers as he was out there, that he was among the Gentiles and so concerned about Gentiles that he was so zealous for them that he had kind of just disregarded the value of the Jewish customs and these kind of things. And these Jewish believers who are very zealous for the customs and the law of Moses, and this is a very sensitive subject to them, they had been informed that Paul was trying to kind of disregard them. The bottom line is this, they had been misinformed. They were informed about something, but they were misinformed about what Paul was doing, because this was not what Paul was doing. But because we live in a world of misunderstanding, people develop perceptions sometimes. People see something, and as soon as they see it, they're convinced the way they see it, they know every detail behind it. They know the motive of somebody's heart. They know why they did that and what they're doing and what else is going on. And we think from our viewpoint and our limited knowledge that this is, and all of a sudden, we start making assumptions and we start coming to our own conclusions and we speculate what's going on or what somebody's doing and sadly, people then start to inform others as well and the reality is a lot of times what's going on is misunderstanding and people are misinformed. They're informed, but they're misinformed of what really is going on and it's just a simple misunderstanding that's not accurate and that's what's happening here. People were misinformed saying, Paul, we're hearing here you're out among the Gentiles and you're telling people to forsake Moses altogether and telling them not to circumcise their children anymore and telling people the Mosaic law and the Jewish customs, they have no purpose at all and they should just disregard all of those things. Look, Paul was not teaching that those things had no purpose or should be cast aside completely. What Paul the apostle was teaching in salvation through Jesus Christ and his work is that all of those things, the law and everything combined with it, all of those things were completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Not that they were not of value, that they had no purpose, but that Christ had completely fulfilled those things in what they all represented, in what they all foreshadowed and sought to point to. And Paul was teaching us salvation through Christ by faith that was simply saying, look, observing circumcision or trying to keep the law is not sufficient to make a person righteous before God. This is what Paul was teaching. Paul was teaching that keeping the Mosaic law and customs is not going to get you into heaven. Jesus will get you into heaven. That's what Paul was teaching. Romans 3, Paul would write, through the law is the knowledge of sin to show we're all guilty. In other words, Paul was saying the law has a purpose. It's good, he said in Romans 7. Its purpose is to show us that we're guilty. The law is something to demonstrate to us and expose to us that we can't keep God's holy law. The law reveals to us, here's the standard, and you don't measure up. And like a mirror, it revealed the people's condition because they couldn't keep the law. But like a mirror, it can reveal your condition, but it can't change your hairdo right? It can show you your condition, 
but it can't resolve your condition. And Paul said, this is what the law was good for. It could reveal we're sinners, but it can't save us. And trying to keep it can't make us righteous. And it doesn't resolve that issue. Jesus came, totally fulfilled, the Bible says, the righteous requirement of the law for us, and then died for the penalty of breaking the law, which we all do. This is what Paul was teaching, that Christ was the ultimate Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world, and he alone can bring forgiveness and give us his righteousness so that we can be right with God. Paul writes about this in detail in the book of Romans and Galatians. Romans 3, Paul says it this way, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. In Galatians 2.16, Paul says this, yet we know a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we believed in Christ so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we obeyed the law. This is accurately what Paul was teaching. Not what people had been misinformed. He was saying the Mosaic law and customs are not required to make us holy, nor can they make us righteous before God. That's not their purpose, Paul was saying. Their primary purpose, Paul would teach, as he learned from Jesus, that the law and customs of Moses were to point people to Jesus, that they would believe upon him as the Savior and the Messiah. Remember, Jesus himself said, the things written in the law of Moses are concerning me. That's what they're written about, to point you to me. And Paul understood as a good Jewish man himself that God was ultimately looking for circumcision of the heart. Hey, is he out there saying we shouldn't circumcise our Jewish children anymore? Paul would say, look, that's, it's not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God wants your heart to be circumcised. He wants your heart to be yielded to him. Paul would say again, writing to the Romans in chapter 2, a person is not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Paul was not telling people to set aside the law of Moses and to devalue it altogether or to stop circumcising their children. He was just saying those things can't make you righteous, only the work of Jesus Christ. And his righteousness can make you holy and acceptable before God. You have to receive what Jesus did in fulfilling the requirements of those things. So there was this clear misunderstanding. People are misinformed. So verse 22, as they announced this to Paul, they then say, what then? In other words, what should we do? The assembly must certainly meet. The people are going to come together, they say, Paul. For they will hear that you've come. Paul, we need to do something. We need to put this fire out. There's a clear misunderstanding here. Now, instead of just letting Paul explain what was misunderstood, they come up with a plan to fix the problem instead. Why bother communicating? Let's just try and fix it ourselves, right? We've all done that before. So verse 23, look what they say. Therefore, do what we tell you. I have that underlined in my Bible, and then I have in my notes famous last words. Hey, we got a problem here, misunderstanding. Let's not talk about it. Just do what we tell you. We're going to fix this. We got a way to fix this ourselves. We got a plan. So they say, do what we tell you, Paul. We have four men who've taken a vow. 
Take them, be purified with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, and all know that those things which they have been informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself walk orderly and you keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles, they say, whom we believe, we've already written and decided, that was Acts chapter 15, member of the Jerusalem Council, that they should observe no such thing except they should keep themselves from things offered to idols and blood, from things strangled and from sexual immorality. So basically, what they want Paul to do here is to become, if you would, a sponsor for these four Jewish men who've taken a vow, hoping this will prove his respect for the law and pacify these Jewish believers who are very sensitive over the subject. The men who've taken the vow probably was a Nazarite vow, more than likely, on what's described here, Numbers chapter 6. The Nazarite vow was a willing vow of dedication, where you for a set period of time would choose to just consecrate yourself over to God in a unique way. You would refrain from certain things, like from the fruit of the vine. You would refrain from having anything to do with death. And you would grow your hair long and not shave during that time as an outward sign, an indication that you were in a set period of a vow or dedication of yourself over to God in just a a complete way, and the growth of the hair was a way of indicating that as a sign outwardly. When you came to the end of that time period of your vow, it could be a month, it could be for six months, it was a willing vow, you would then make a financial contribution or an offering and then cut your hair off to indicate that your vow was over. So they proposed to Paul in verse 24 there, their idea, they say, look, we have some of these men who've made a vow. Why don't you enter in with them, they say, be purified with them, Paul, we'd also like you to pay their expenses. If you could sponsor them, we'd appreciate that. Sponsor them, pay their offering fee for them. And they say, if you do this, that will indicate to everybody that you're a good Jewish man. You still got your life in order. You respect Judaism and that you don't disregard the law. And they say, look, as far as the Gentiles, verse 25, they say, we've already dealt with that back at the Jerusalem Council. What we need to do here, they say, Paul, is pacify the Jews in this situation. Now, technically, Paul knew, clearly we understand, that he was not obligated to keep the righteous requirements of the law. He was not required to still live under the regulations of the Mosaic law, and he knew that it would add nothing to his righteousness received from Christ. But I want you to notice, rather than refuse to do what they're asking him, rather than stubbornly kind of dig in his heels and say, look, this is ridiculous. I am innocent of what they're accusing me of. This is just foolishness. That's not what I'm out there teaching. They're just misinformed, and this is absolute insanity. I am not doing what you're asking. Look instead what happens. Verse 26, it says, Paul took the men the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of their days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Notice, Paul opts not to get in a dispute over this very sensitive issue for these new believers, and he knows they're still learning. They're still learning how to adjust to relating to the law. They're still trying to figure out, okay, I'm a follower of Jesus now, but I have all this background on my religious upbringing and all these traditions in my religious upbringing that were so much a part of my life, and they're still trying to sort all this out, and Paul just shows grace. And he just shows flexibility in spirit here amidst all of the misunderstanding 
and he cooperates with them and even tries to help resolve the misunderstanding. He pays their expenses and he participates for love's sake among the brethren. Now, he knew he didn't have to do this, but he does it for love's sake. He errs on the side of love and grace to try and bring peace and build relationship. Romans chapter 14, Paul would say, accept one who is in the faith that is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness doing what's right. Peace being at peace with people and joy in the Holy Spirit for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. Do you see Paul's maturity there? As we serve the Lord, folks, even among the church, even among the church, sometimes wisdom learns when to pick your battles. Oh, this is ridiculous. What do you believe in? You're, you're just legalistic. And Paul doesn't do that. By the way, give me back that financial donation. We brought you all this money and now you're going to accuse me of that? I mean, Paul doesn't do none of that. Paul, well, I already brought you a financial donation and now you want me to sponsor four guys for their vow? He doesn't do any of that. But in a spirit of just grace and humility and flexibility, he, he knows in his conscience between him and God what he's doing and not doing. He doesn't get defensive. He just doesn't do anything other than graciously be flexible and cooperate. And he reminds us that being right sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, is not always the highest goal. Sometimes the highest goal is staying in right relationship with other people. Because if you can maturity, take the higher road in love and stay in right relationship, guess what? You can then keep continuing to minister to people because you don't close people off. You can continue to walk in love with them and help them and help them sort through things and they start to see the bigger picture and you start to see the bigger picture and hey, let me sacrifice because then over time I can keep a relationship and keep ministering these people. What did Paul ultimately, well, I believe Paul ultimately, he wrote the book of Hebrews which addresses this whole issue of legalism and how to work that out among the old customs and ways of Judaism and how that pertains now to Christ and so forth. So it's great wisdom, I believe, on Paul's part here. Verse 27 says, when the seven days were almost ended, now Jews from Asia, these would be unbelieving Jews from where Paul was out ministering, seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him. And that wasn't for prayer. Crying out, saying, Men of Israel, help us. This man who teaches all men everywhere against the temple, the law in this place, and furthermore, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Verse 29 parenthetically says, For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian, that is a Gentile man, with Paul in the city, whom they, underline this word, supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So before this could really have its full impact, now a group of unbelieving Jews show up. They stir up the crowd, further accusations towards Paul. And in essence, what's happening here, remember, there was great animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles culturally. So much so that even among the temple grounds and precincts, in the courtyard areas, there was the temple, then there was the court of the priests, then there was the court of the Jews. And as you went out further, different groups were allowed in different areas. 
Well, if you would, the Jews did not want the Gentiles encroaching in the area where they were closer to the temple. And so there was actually a wall, a boundary with the threatening signs indicating if a Gentile crosses past this area into the area of the Jews, they'll be put to death. It was a capital crime. And what we're seeing described here is it says that the people saw Paul in the temple, but then they also previously saw Paul with Trophimus and some Gentile men in the city, and they supposed, oh, well, if he's hanging out at the market, then I bet you he brought them into the, he brought them into the Jewish court. And so they supposed, imagine that happens sometimes, they supposed that Paul had defiled the holy place, and so they are enraged that he would do this. Not only does he teach these wrong things, but now he's come in and defiled this holy place. So it says all the city was disturbed. The people ran together and seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. So a riotous mob now starts to erupt at this point. Verse 31 says, look at it, now as they were seeking to kill him, kill him. These were the religious folk. They're seeking to kill Paul. They're literally beating him with the intention of beating him to death. Now, isn't it amazing, again, how severe and brutal people can be in their treatment of people even when they're just having a misunderstanding? They don't have all the facts. They're just assuming something, and yet in their assumption, they're being very brutal in their treatment. They're actually trying to beat the guy to death because of an assumption and a misunderstanding. So verse 31 says, as they're seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. So from the northwest corner and what was the Antonia Fortress that overlooked the temple precincts, the Roman police station, if you would, the, the commander and hundreds of soldiers see this riot starting to break out during feast season of thinking this is dangerous the city is packed so they go rushing down to where paul is and all this chaos and confusion is going on to try and quell this mob kind of like the riot squad coming in and verse 32 says immediately as he took soldiers and ran down to them when they saw the commander and the soldiers they stopped beating paul so thankfully the presence of the roman guard intimidated them and now here's Paul all beaten and bloodied and they stopped beating him. And the commander came near, verse 33, took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. Aha, prophecy fulfilled. Paul, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound and you're going to deal with some troubles there. And all of a sudden, Paul's realizing, so this is what God meant. <laughs> And now all of a sudden, I think in some ways as Paul's experiencing this, no doubt he's also probably to some degree being encouraged in his spirit because he goes, but Lord, I know you're with me in this because you told me this was going to happen. Lord, you told me this was going to happen. So it's hard, but I believe, Lord, somehow that you're involved in this. And so it says that he then began to ask, verse 33, who Paul was and what he had done. He's trying to inquire, what's going on here? Who are you? And what have you done that the people are trying to beat you to death here in the temple? And when some of the multitude cried one thing and some another, they could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult. He commanded him to be taken into the barracks. So, so chaotic was the situation that stemmed from what? A misunderstanding. Nobody's story lines up. 
Everybody has a different account of what happened. It says they couldn't ascertain the truth. And notice, this misunderstanding is characterized by what? Confusion. Nobody has the story straight now. And can I just say, what a great reminder, because often when severe misunderstandings happen amongst people, that's the result. That's at least the devil's agenda, to just keep everybody involved in the situation in a perpetual state of confusion. We are angry at you, and we don't even remember why we're angry at you, but we're angry at you. And we are going to be angry at you forever. Oh, we forgive you, but we have this chip on our shoulder, and we will be angry at you. I don't even know why, but I just, I just don't like you anymore. Right? And this is just kind of what the devil does. Why are, what happened here? This person has one account. This person has one account. None of them line up. The reality is the devil got involved and people are sinful. That's why we love, forgive, move on. That's what we're supposed to do. But all this chaos, what's going on? Nobody can ascertain the truth. What, look what happens going on. Verse, uh, it says, verse 35, when they reach the stairs... It got so bad they have to carry Paul on their shoulders because of the violent mob. For the people were following after, crying, away with him. That is, kill this guy. Get him out of here. And as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? And he said, can you speak Greek? He was surprised. Who, who are you? How can you speak other languages? He was surprised Paul could speak multiple languages. He says to him, verse 38, another misunderstanding, aren't you the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? He says, well, aren't you that Egyptian terrorist who caused a problem? Paul says, I'm a Jew. I, I, now you think I'm an Egyptian terrorist? Look what Paul says, verse 39. He says, I'm a Jew from the city of Tarshish in Cilicia and a citizen of no mean city. In other words, he's saying, I even have Roman citizenship. I'm a Jew. And I'm a Roman citizen, which meant he had rights according to law. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given permission, Paul stood up on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people and spoke, and there was a great silence, and he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. So look how our text concludes here. As Paul goes through this whole process, I mean, man, he sees the, the situation, misunderstanding, the guy's beat up, he's bloody, they're carrying him through the barracks, and then Paul zeroes in on these steps as they're climbing up the barrack area there, and he says, man, those steps would be a really good platform to tell all these people about Jesus. And I look at this situation here, and I think, man... After all that Paul's been through, the misunderstanding, the mistreatment, and we'll see in the next chapter, that's what he does, is speak to him about Jesus. Instead of thinking about, forget all you evil people, you hurt me, you mistreated me, you accused me, instead he has concern and love for them. And let me say to you as an application to take home with today, how do you handle when misunderstandings happen? How do you handle it personally? Maybe somebody thinks wrong things. Maybe they've said wrong things about you. Maybe they've accused you. Maybe even in the midst of misunderstanding, you kind of got hurt and wounded and mistreated. Is your outlook going to be, and is it anger and bitterness and resentment and cutting those people off? Or do you take the higher road of humility and love and forgiveness and releasing things. And my question to you is this, as a follower of Jesus, 
Which response do you think he wants you to have?